Hello everyone, thank you for joining us for another weekly show here at RTL in Kirchberg, Luxembourg. Hello to all of you from all over the world who join us and of course for the international listeners and viewers here in Luxembourg. I'm delighted to have Sasha back in the studio with us. We're going to have a little... Hi Lisa. Lovely to have you back from your weekend in Lisbon. We will talk a little bit about that. I also am delighted to welcome somebody joining us from Edinburgh, in fact. It's Julianne Fouché. So hello to you, Julianne. Hiya. It's to be here. And great to have you as well. And in the studio, I have Julianne Larios and Marc Liss from My Connectivity. So welcome to you as well. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, as always, I'm going to start with a little reflection of the week's news. And uh, before we do that, Sasha, you were in Lisbon last weekend. You had a nice little break. Oh, it was a lovely break. Yes, my first time to Lisbon. And uh, yeah, what a fun place. Uh, we, we had the best weekend ever. And I kind of feel that um, it's, be, it's been a really long time since we've done the news. Because, of course, I haven't seen you since we did that election special. Yeah, which is um, a bit of a marathon. Which is now nearly <laughs> two weeks ago. And um, I, so we never had a chance to kind of catch up after the elections no. and so much has happened since that has put it rather on the side, obviously, yeah. at least. Absolutely. We will come to the elections and how the coalition talks are going right now, but we are going to talk firstly about the Middle East. And I'm quite sure you, like I, have been across a lot of the the media coverage of this. Um, But I like the angle that you've taken, which is um, news organisations and about journalism there. Yes, because I was thinking, you know, with with a sort of weekly show, um, it's such a fast-moving uh, situation that, and it's changing all the time. That you know, you you can't sum up what what's been going on in the last week or or what what's going to happen. So I was thinking about how difficult it is now to differentiate between. Um, what's really happening and and you know what is being reported and who by uh, fake news you know this this they always talked about that it would take a situation like this to really show what social media it, you know what's happening in social media and i think um you know it's difficult for us journalists to to really find the, the truth. truth yeah because um you know obviously uh, things are being put out, videos are being put out which are unverified and a lot of big news organisations now have a verification unit. Which is really valuable. Which is really valuable because if you're, but if you're getting your news on social media and specifically now on X, uh, formerly Twitter, it is unverified and people have been sharing videos, um, you know, that are shocking, often they are they are genuine, but very often they have been showing um, things that that are just not happening. Yeah, the propaganda potential is enormous, and I was sent a few of these videos. Actually, they're really awful. Yes, I mean the the, the big one is obviously the, the the decapitation of babies. That report that just spiraled out of you know all news organisations were kind of reporting it to the point that even President Biden said he had seen footage. And um, it had to be retracted afterwards. And in fact, it was um, a former colleague of yours, Stuart Ramsey at Sky News, who was in that kibbutz and was asking people and said he had no verified reports that this had actually happened. And, 
you know, off, after that, um, you know, people have been backpedaling, well, the, the Israeli side have been backpedaling on this specific report. And that's just one example. I mean, the the bombing of the hospital is another huge example, mm-hmm. this absolutely tragic um, event that happened this week where, according to the Palestinian side, over 470 people were killed and it was initially reported it was an Israeli airstrike. Israelis said from the beginning it, it wouldn't have been. They showed videos showing that it, what they believed or the military believed it would have been an errant um, rocket from the, from the Palestinians, mm. uh, from the Hamas side, um, or Islamic Jihad, they said. But, you know, it's very difficult for us to work out what's true and what mm. isn't because everything is being pumped out so fast. Mm. Um, and I think this is so dangerous at this point. Yeah, because, of course, when those stories are out, they are propagated. And it's even if it's retracted at a later date, the damage is done. Absolutely, is mentally done and the seeds are sown. Um, but also that word truth is so interesting because I'm sure you've been listening to a lot of the podcasts that I know. We've, the rest is politics, for instance. Yes. And they've had some incredible guests on recently uh, to show both sides. Yuval Noah Harare and the Palestinian ambassador in London. And um, they're very, very strong speakers on both sides of the issues. But the truth is is not only the truth of now, it's the truth of the history. And so many people don't understand. They haven't had the opportunity to learn the history. And, and, and that's why we are where we are. Well, absolutely. I mean, you that there are there have been lots of podcasts kind of explaining the backstory, which I have kind of re-listened to because, as you say, you you forget um, you know exactly what the situation is. You get so caught up in the sort of human tragedies that are happening that you 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 kind of forget where where it started or why it's even happening and i think it's so important for people to educate themselves on on this issue because as you say we're at the beginning i'm mm. afraid um you know if if there it's it's going to carry on and it's 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 such a tragedy for the civilians there it, it, you know we hope it doesn't expand from from the gaza strip um but I but think we all feel helpless. What we really have to do is to be well informed and not yeah. blame each other because I think that's that's what's really come out is yeah. really, you know, one human life is not worth any another. Um, and I think, uh, you know, with these very strong sentiments that come with the, this particular conflict, I think people get so one-sided. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think it was the tribalism of, of pain that Rory Stewart uh, spoke about. Um, but I may have uh, yes, misphrased yes. that. It was something like that, that people are so caught up in their own pain. It's very hard and they're living in worlds of parallel pain. It's very hard to empathise with the other side because uh, the it's just, well, I mean, <laughs> it goes back decades now, but not too many decades either. This pain schism is is really since, what, 1948, perhaps, yeah. maybe earlier, started at the beginning of the 1900s, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, incredibly damaging. And, and let's hope the ripple effects of that don't spiral outwards. But it feels like they might. And that's that's what's concerning the entire world right now. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, every politician is is in the West is is 
visiting. invested, is visiting, is desperate. You know, Biden today is going to Congress to ask for billions of, of dollars of aid to Israel and interestingly also to uh, Ukraine still. So yeah. that, that's an, another danger is, of course, the Ukraine war is, is being very much forgotten about or sidelined for now because the world's attention has moved elsewhere. Well, the conversation is also paralleled that conversation, which is how we speak about what's happening in Ukraine compared to what we speak about with the situation in Palestine and Israel. Anyway, let's park that because I'm sure we'll come back to it next week, sadly, but I'm sure we will. Um, to uh, closer news, again, I'm, it's sad news, but we had a little incident in Belgium which really rocked Brussels. Well, these things are are connected, obviously. So a Belgian uh, a gunman shot down two Swedish football fans uh, before a football match. And, um, you know, this is it's really shocking. Um, and he the match was actually stopped halfway uh, when once people realised what was going on. The gunman was on the run all night and then was caught by the police the following morning and shot dead. But it has caused, again, it's it's this feeling of insecurity. Uh, where where are threat levels in, in Europe? There have been many, many threats on, on French airports. Um, mm. They seem to mainly be hoaxes, but, you know, the, the whole of air traffic control for the last few days across uh, France has been thrown and ca- flights cancelled. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was also um, an attack in Germany on uh, on a synagogue. I mean, the, you know, the, the ripple effects of this terrible situation in the Gaza um, is also in Europe. I'm yeah, it causes that, that feeling of absolute insecurity ac- across people who have believed up until this point we live in a safe world. Um, Well, connected a little bit, Poland elections. Well, this is an interesting Mm. one, isn't it? Um, So, you know, the the hopes of the this uh, civic coalition run by uh, uh, Donald Tusk, who used to work for the European uh, Union, um, to ally against the governing law and justice party seemed unattainable actually the law and justice party had such a hold on the media and um you know on on voters and a, and a big majority and they seem to have not got enough votes to carry on in in um government uh so at they, rather like in Luxembourg, are going to have to go into a coalition and it's going to be interesting because anything is possible. I mean, all the media is saying this is fantastic. It's such a win for the civic movement. Um, They're going to ally with these two other parties and uh, law and justice are out because they're very Um, anti-EU. However, you know, anything could happen. It's going to be coalition talks for the next few weeks. And there is a rumour in the Polish press, but I haven't seen it here, that the governing Law and Justice Party could ally with the Farmers Party Mm. um, and get and a far right party and get a majority that way. So let's wait and see. Um, The reason Polish people abroad are desperate for a change. Mm. They voted in droves. I mean, it's the biggest um, voter turnout ever, around 70%, and especially among young voters, um, and particularly expat voters as well. So, Yeah, I read that too. And the reason it's so important is because Poland is extremely strategically placed in Europe, um, and has been, you know, the, the centre point of so much 
relatively recent history, you know, I think people understand and remember this is really, really important. Well, especially with Hungary and the swing in Slovakia towards a very populist uh, party. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want this populist party out. And what's happening nearby in Ukraine. Absolutely. So, yeah, a lot going on there. Uh, Back to our elections, you know, we haven't really caught up since (laughs) we managed to catch our breath since that night. It was a wonderful night. Um, We still have coalition talks continuing Yes, so they've been going on all week. And um, so at first it was the sort of the delegations from the CSV and the DP. So Luke le- led by Luke Frieden and uh, Xavier Bettel. And uh, it's now gone into sort of task forces. They're trying to work out in exact, uh, you know, issues where they can agree or disagree. But uh, a press conference has been announced for this afternoon. We're recording mm. on Friday. Yeah. Because, of course, what everybody's really interested in is who gets what ministries. I mean, yeah. I think the assumption is that this is a coalition that will happen. Well, I, I say that, I could, could, might not, but... Um, we think so. We think so. <laughs> but who's going to get what ministries and who's going to be our Prime Minister? Well... Big question. I think we... Do we, we know? I don't know. I've heard I've heard different rumours, okay, I should say. Okay, okay. Uh, completely well, opposing. So. Well, the shame is we might be putting this out when we know the when news. When we know. So apologies to any <laughs> yes. listeners or viewers if this is going out uh, and a little bit historic, but we don't know. I mean, it's exciting. We're just on the tenterhooks uh, not knowing right now. Well, they said they wouldn't necessarily uh, announce anything until after the All Saints holiday. Okay. So that's at the end of the month. So they might still keep us waiting a bit and Mm. just be a very general press conference today. But I think our guests know more than us. Do you? you They're looking quite knowing. You're looking very smiley, Mark. You always have an inroad into these things. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I have. I don't don't have a crystal ball that that would tell me about the future. So, uh, no, Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any more information that you have. You're probably better informed than I am. Well, we don't know. But um, another story. And I know it's one that actually I, Mark and Julian, you will you will allude to a little bit as well. Perhaps not this one, but AI made in Luxembourg. Yes, so this is the first um, AI that um, made in Luxembourg that, that that I've been aware of. It's called Let's AI, so it's uh, Luxembourg's first artificial intelligence, um, and. I think it's very interesting because it's apparently very young Luxembourgish developers who've made it. And it's it's um, AI with a sort of Luxembourgish flair. So they've... Um, what does that mean? <laughs> so, they, so I think there are a lot of um, Luxembourgish photos, people of, uh, yes, people here, sort of, uh, you know, classic... Classic Luxembourgers. Po- politicians, Luxembourgers. <laughs> I don't know, individuals. And you can also register yourself as a user okay. or companies can register themselves for 99 euros. And um, you can use your own images if okay. you so wish. So I think this is going to be really interesting, yeah. sort of local AI rather than um, a sort of AI that may be more, uh, you know, when you put in ChatGPT, say, yeah. um, the answers are... I find tend to not be very relevant to us living here maybe. Oh that's that's interesting the the focal point I mean it's good to have anything coming out of Europe but um, I think some people are pros in knowing how to ask chat GPT questions and to to change it so that they get the answers they want they're just amazingly good at it because they've spent a lot of time on it. Yeah, it's an art to really ask the right the right, the right question. Yeah, yeah. I bet there'll be another, you know, university course on how to yeah. ask uh, ChatGPT the right be, questions. Exactly, but it could become a job by itself. Yeah. To, uh, to be like uh, to the 
the art of asking the right questions and to formulate the questions in a proper way. Well, do you know, I think that's a great job. Have you ever thought about that as a journalist, Sasha? Very interesting, the wouldn't it? The art of asking the right questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> it's well, great, but I mean, if they fed, because I presume if you put in to ChatGBT, show me a photo of Xavier Bettel, it would, it would come up. But if you said some lesser known politician or local mayor or something, if they fed hundreds and hundreds of photos into this Luxembourgish AI, maybe that would be more Suddenly Luxembourg will have a larger AI map than geographical map. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. perhaps. Yes. But you mentioned art and our final story is one of an art detective, actually. I liked this, this story is a, nice a lot. Um, yeah, so it's a, he's a Dutch art detective and he's called the Indiana Jones of the art world. And he's very famous. He's just uh, found six paintings. But the reason he says that he, he has found these six paintings that were stolen, they weren't themselves particularly worth a lot of money, is because a few months ago, and I, I remember this story, he recovered a stolen Van Gogh painting yeah. and that got so much publicity because yeah. it was it was dumped in an Ikea bag. Do you remember? (laughs) (laughs) And um, that got so much publicity that actually the thieves who stole this uh, portrait of William of Orange and the first depiction uh, of the 17th century king um, was that... 7th century king, maybe. Uh, sorry, seventh. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, yeah, seventh a, a, a century king. A while ago, <laughs> was that he said, "Well, you'll never be able to sell any of these," and um, so so they were handed back uh, back to him. So now he's very hopeful that he said you'd be better stealing some bikes, um, which I thought was quite a good. That's quote. hilarious. Um, so now he's very very hopeful that uh, having got these six paintings back and he that he would just they were just not dropped outside his house um oh that gosh. he's going to find some other paintings that are stolen because there is still a van gogh and there's a masterpiece by franz hals called the two laughing boys which is still missing um so and there is a vermeer manet rembrandt various paintings that have been stolen that he's now very hopeful this They've guy never is been so interesting sold. i've heard him on numbers interviews and I cannot remember the name of um, at least two podcasts I, I, series right, yes. I, I've listened to him on and and he, he's just fascinating because sometimes people because you might think if you steal an incredibly famous painting you cannot sell it because people would know it's yes. been stolen um, oh I remember it was um, it was a podcast about um, a piece of art um, I've forgotten who it was stolen from a castle in Scotland actually and uh, it, it was finally found again but after the the owner died and the owner loved the paintings and felt so uh, attached to what he was safeguarding that he used to take it for a drive in his car in velvet next to him and things like this it was it, anyway it, they got it back Nutty, yes. but but apparently it's uh, like drug mafia groups that uh, hold this safeguarding it in some way and something or other but anyway if I can find the name of that podcast series I will put it out there because it was so interesting well, his name is Arthur Brand he's fabulous and yeah, um, yeah these were worth only about around 100,000 euros which I suppose in the art world is not this Huge it's not millions prize, compared to the Van Gogh. Yeah. But um, yeah. I, th- I think it's amazing it's just to story. quietly be dumped 
paintings outside your house. I know. He's obviously a fantastic detective. Now, there's another job that would be fun to do. And Ask ChatGPT or become an art sleuth. He, he talks about why he did that as well. I must find that podcast. It was so, so interesting. And it, it sounds like one of those jobs you're never told about at school. <laughs> and it's really fun. Um, but now that I have Scotland in my mind, I'm going to turn directly to you. Because, Julianne, I can see you there. Uh, and I love your pink earphones. They're super. How <laughs> are you there in Scotland? I'm doing good. I keep glancing at the window because the, uh, <laughs> we have trees going a bit sideways. So I'm, I'm hanging on to my connection for dear life right now. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's why I'm going to you right now, because um, I am aware there is a, a very bad storm in Scotland and people are being evacuated from the northeast of Scotland right now. Uh, you're in Edinburgh. And just to give our listeners and viewers a little brief um, summary of you, Julianne Fouché, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, you're now yeah. a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh in science communication and public engagement, researching accessibility in science events, especially science festivals. And a little bit about your background. You have already worked as a researcher in museums, best practice for museum educators and science centres. And you've worked in Tampa, Florida, as the coordinator of the US Science Festival Alliance, as science engagement specialist in astro-materials research and exploration sciences as a consultant at the Johnson Space Centre. So uh, you've now gone back to do your PhD after all of this experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you enjoying Edinburgh? Um, I do. I love it here. Despite despite complaining about the weather just a moment ago, I swear I really love Scotland. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great city. And um, you're here because Saturday is International Observe the Moon Night. So you've worked in it for almost a decade. I know you were on the organising committee for the first ever International Observe the Moon Night. And you've always been bringing people's engagement to this. So what is it? I mean, I suppose it's pretty obvious. International Observe the Moon Night, but tell us about it. <laughs> um, so um, I, I know some some event names can be misleading, but I promise this one is exactly what it says on the tin. It is Observe the Moon Night, um, but we do we we do stretch that a bit. Um, observe the Moon Night is not just about going out there and observing the moon, um, although if that's what you are keen to do, to go outside and just look up um, at that beautiful near Earth neighbor and just go there she is, um, then if, if that's how you choose to observe the moon, amazing. Um, but it's also about learning about lunar science. It's about creating in the name of lunar science, or just um, if you're like me, and it may be a bit like this on the weather. Saturday. Yeah, can you yeah. see the moon? <laughs> yeah. uh, we do have live streams available where you can tune in to look at the moon um, in a part of the country or the world where it is clear out, um, or it could just be enjoying a lunar song. So it could be a little bit of everything. We try to be, um, I guess, flexible in what observation <laughs> means, um, but also giving people a chance to kind of participate in this global event uh, in multiple different ways. Yeah, and the, NASA is behind this as well. Yes. So this um, this is a NASA effort, um, even though I myself do not work at NASA. Uh, they are the ones who kind of helm this and um, a few of my coworkers work there. But we do collaborate with many people both inside of NASA and outside of NASA. Um, as I said, I'm a or as you said, I'm a researcher <laughs> at the University of Edinburgh now. Uh, so we do try and make this a giant collaborative effort to try and get many different viewpoints um, and to try and bring a lot of different stakeholders together uh, to make sure that this event uh, is 
as accessible and is going out to as many people as possible. But NASA is the big brain behind this. Um, and that's where we get some of our um, amazing lunar activities, where all the lunar um, expertise kind of comes in from behind this. Um, and if you go to the website, that's where uh, you'll see like all the great lunar activities. You'll never guess where all that lunar science came from the experts in in the moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, as I'm listening to you and your your passion for this, um, I mean, a lot of questions are bubbling up. I mean, my first question is, why have you chosen Edinburgh to do the PhD when all of your experience is the other side <laughs> of the pond? So um, Edinburgh actually has a great program in science communication and public engagement. But also, um, Edinburgh has a long reigning science festival here, um, and the UK is kind of the home of science festivals. So the British Science Festival itself has been going for, I think, 170, 190 years. So there's been science festivals here for what is over longer than any science festivals in the US have been going. So to base my research somewhere where science festivals have had such a long history made a lot more sense. Um, even though I had done work with the US Science Festivals Network and coordinated the US Science Festivals Network for about six years um, to do the research, I really felt like kind of going to the motherland of it all. <laughs> oh, oh that, that's nice to hear, actually. Um, and yeah, <laughs> warms my heart. But it also makes me think about the increasing, and again, when we talk about connectivity and, well, AI, but AI used positively this time for real news, not fake news. Um, there's a, a growing push towards citizen science as well. And in fact, if you can engage normal people who don't work in the world of science or research, they can still add data points. And I know that also happens in the UK when it comes to something such, well, might sound simple, but actually it isn't, bird watching or something, Who, what, what animals come into your garden. So the citizen science element is increasing too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of goes back to the International Observe the Moon Night point too, like engaging people in all different capacities. This was also, I think, kind of a big part during COVID as well. Uh, and I think science festivals had to really lean into that, um, I guess, uh, remote engagement with people is this idea of, okay, we can't physically all be in one place all together all at the same time, which is something I think festivals were really reliant on. They all wanted to be like, okay, hands-on, all together, doing activities. And then for a good two, almost three years, they really didn't have that opportunity. And something that I think they were able to take from festivals that had been very dispersed and events that had been very dispersed, like Observe the Moon Night, is this idea that you don't have to be all in one place all at one time to celebrate something big and massive and special, you can be completely dispersed. And in the case of, of Observe the Moon Night, globally dispersed and celebrate this one amazing activity together. Um, and I think being able to have something central like Observe the Moon Night has like, okay, we've come together with the moon. And it's a very, it's a very big idea. It's a very big concept. But they've simplified it and been like, if all you have to do is go into your garden and look up, that's still you've participated. You've been part of something. And I think that's very accessible to people because there's a very low bar of entry, yeah. um, but, <laughs> which is great because it can be if you've got, you know, if you've got a toddler or I had, I had five younger brothers growing up. Oh, my trying God. To coordinate five, <laughs> trying to coordinate five little brothers to do one thing together. 
<laughs> but if I could get all of them outside to be like, okay, we're all looking up together. There it is. That would have been magnificent. So I can only imagine that, you know, a busy mom or dad on the weekend just getting all their kids together and being like, okay, we've done something as a group. We've gotten it together. I that's, love that. That's, I mean, yeah. it sounds like you have another story there entirely about uh, growing up with five <laughs> younger brothers. Was there? A, were you the eldest or were there anyone above you? No, I was the oldest. I was the oldest and the only girl. <laughs> oh, my good God. Oh, my gosh. So your job from the minute you were born was herding the the miniature <laughs> male flock behind you. My goodness. So tell us a little bit more about uh, how people can join. I know NASA have their own uh, connection point. Mm-hmm. So we do have, and are you able to put the links up for oh, people yes. to... Oh, fantastic. So we'll have the links available then for you to be able to register online. Uh, I've already registered for myself and my partner. Uh, We will be viewing, well, um, fingers crossed, we will be viewing from from Edinburgh. Uh, But if not, we'll be trying to either view in on a live stream that NASA provides uh, or, uh, I guess, trying to peer through the clouds or breaks in the clouds now that I'm looking out the window. Uh, But there's plenty of ways that you can participate. Online, we have a registration uh, sign-up spot. You can register as a householder individual. You can attend a party or host a party if you want. And remember, a party doesn't have to be a huge celebration. It can just be you and a few friends getting together and toasting. Walk out onto the street or in the garden. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And there may be an event happening close to you. There may be a museum or a, a science center or even an art museum that's holding something uh, to celebrate as well. Mm. I know there are sometimes NASA centers uh, in the U.S. that occasionally hold big blowout events. So you never know what's going to show up. We do have uh, all of those listed on the website where you can kind of type in your postcode and see if there's a public event for you to attend near you. There's also tons of activities online. So if you have little ones and you are looking for something or you have big ones, um, I know when I was (laughs) working with uh, high school students, there was always a really great opportunity to print out something to distract them um, <laughs> and be like, all right, we're going to color. I know it sounds counterproductive because we're all older now, but we're going to put on a scary movie. <laughs> we're going to do this together. <laughs> but there's plenty of stuff to do together. Uh, and there's moon maps. There's postcards if you want to. Uh, there's tons and tons and tons of resources that NASA and the other organizing team members have put together. So I encourage you to go on the website download them tell us that you're going to participate um, and and get out there and observe learn something about lunar science if you feel so compelled to and there's also um, social media that you can share those pictures that you take maybe of your activity uh, let's see there's a Flickr account I believe Gosh, there's a lot else? there's an awful lot going oh, on yeah. <laughs> well I mean it's, it's making me think that uh when we think about space now, we know there's an awful lot going on in space, but still the moon being our closest neighbour, as you put it, out there in space, apart from the satellites, etc. Um, we we still really, really need to learn the science. It's the most accessible science spot. And of course, the, the previous uh, Director General of, of ESA here was talking about making a moon village. And it's still the vision of ESA to make a moon village so that things can be harnessed on the moon to then explore space further. So it's actually, even though this sounds fun and we can have a a moon cake or whatever or have a party, (laughs) the point is to spark interest. 
Yeah. We want to spark people's curiosity and discuss about the moon and, and lunar science. And I think a lot of the activities are to, and to, to go out and look, even again, even if it's just a glance up the moon, is to spark that curiosity and to spark that interest in people to ask those questions. And I think holding space for this kind of an event, even at even if, like I said, on the surface, it seems very small and very simple to just gaze up at it. Um, it is that moment for people to be like, why are we looking at the moon mm. and what's going on up there? And have we, how many like missions have we landed up there? How many countries have gone up there? And I think there's also deeper questions of um, one of the things that I think uh, one of our other stakeholders has mentioned is, you know, the cultural connections that we have to the moon and all these different intrinsic things like the moon showing up in all these different stories throughout, you know, history and, there's a lot of different ways that you can connect to it and that you can, I guess, think about it. And we love people to explore that this time of year and share that with us. Mm -hmm. And having space for that event is just, this is just an opportunity for people to go in depth then and think about it. Why uh, this, certainly don't, why oh, this time of year, actually, that did, I was thinking about this time of year. <laughs> it's not the best time of year. And I mean, obviously, this is a global thing. So in some parts of the world, this is great, but uh, not for certain parts of the world, like the part you're in, for instance. <laughs> well, so we we always try and pick it on a date when there is going to be um, a certain phase of the moon. And a lot of people ask why it's not on a full moon. Um and the reason why is because when it's on a full moon, it's a bit too bright and you don't get to see all the different facets of the moon. So you want it where you can see some of the cratering on the moon um, and you can really see a lot of the different facets of the moon itself. Um, and we also do it in the fall uh, to try and get it to where it's as visible for as many people as possible. Mm. We know it's not ideal or perfect for everybody but we try and get it in kind of that sweet spot where just about everybody can see it well i knew um, there'd be a reason so that's a good reason <laughs> yeah. you've given me a number of good reasons there and i just wanted to kind of come back to you and your work for um in the engagement of, of science and, and the work you've done also with museums because recently i was speaking to somebody who um in belgium who said that now you can get a prescription from a doctor to visit museums for your mental health and for people suffering uh, in some way mentally because it makes them feel better. Uh, you're in a country right now where museums are free. That isn't the case everywhere. So talk to us about your ideas about best practice on museums and museum education. So back in 2008 to 2012, uh, I was part of a research study in best practice in museums and working with um, underprivileged uh, families in museums. And I, one of the things that we offered as part of that program was if the families came in and we kind of compensated them for their time but we also offered them free entry into the museum as part of the project. And I think the ability to come to museums and not have to pay to come in is one of those rare privileges that is offered places that should be offered everywhere. And it's it seems silly because it's like a lot of the exhibits are static. They don't change. They may be the same every time, like the dinosaur will always be there or this this table or this exhibit, those things don't change. But one thing that will always be slightly different is how you interpret that space. 
or who you talk to while you're there. And that is enough to kind of drive people back over and over and over again. I think there's something to be said about kind of the human factor, which is, I think, something that Gene Kranz talked about when he was in the space program as well, is that that's kind of what makes or breaks a great mission. And that's the same with museums. There's this piece where when you go in, it can all be the same, but who you talk to at the door, how they handle you, how you're in a museum exhibit and how they, you know, discuss with you, like, did you have a great day? Or do you need help with this? Or just walk with you quietly and you look at an art piece together and you have a laugh in a very quiet gallery. I think those experiences are exceptionally meaningful. And they when are. there's a... And actually the person who spoke to me about this, sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, no. but, but um, he said that um, the people who have really benefited, not only the people who are getting these free prescriptions in Belgium, the people on the door and the reception staff, he said, they massively benefit because they know they're doing good and they feel yeah. better. So that, that what you're saying is exactly what the research <laughs> has shown. So it's, it's, it's really wonderful. Well, I know you're going to stay with us as I move on to the next guest. So hopefully you'll stay with us, depending on yeah. the connectivity. But that brings me neatly <laughs> to our next two guests, who are Julien Larios, the technical director, and Marc Lys, who is head of marketing and communication at My Connectivity here in Luxembourg. So... Um, a little bit uh, about my connectivity. Um, it's it's well, actually, Julien, you tell me what is my connectivity. I could I can talk about it, but uh, it's best if you do. <laughs> yes, sure. So yeah, we, we talked about space uh, just before, but my connectivity is much more down on Earth or even underground. Sometimes, um, my, my connectivity uh, is a public initiative to help uh, the citizens and, and businesses in Luxembourg to be better connected to the internet. And uh, it is an initiative from a department of the Media, Connectivity and Digital Policy, which is under the Ministry of State. And they partnered with LUKIX, which is the Internet Exchange of Luxembourg. It's a bit technical, but let me explain. It's quite easy. LUKIX is a platform where all operators, telecom operators, connect with each other so they can uh, exchange data in, uh, within the borders of Luxembourg. So they represent the telecom ecosystem and together with the ministry, uh, uh, they created my connectivity. Yeah, and we're going to delve into that. Now, your background, Mark, is, is completely different. You are a former filmmaker, in fact, <laughs> 16 years spent in television and corporate video production and uh, five and a half years as the cluster manager for the creative industries at Lux Innovation. So you've now moved over to my connectivity since September 2022. And it's obvious head of marketing and comms. So you, you've seen, um, you know, connectivity from different sides. So tell us about your experience of it so far. I have, and that's also to kind of like close the loop on the earlier discussion, what uh, Sasha told us in the news of the Let's AI. That's how I know Karim and Mish who started this with Neon uh, because they were part of the cluster. So I had the chance of meeting lots of great creative minds that we have here in Luxembourg. And at that time, it was more about creating projects, whereas now it's more about being back in a creative role. Mm. So um, in creating support materials, you know, we have a lot of events for, for our activities and projects that we want to showcase uh, and yeah, to sensitize, inform and educate the consumer about what we do. 
Um, and yeah, so that's that's what I'm doing at the moment with a small team, but uh, having lots of fun. Yeah, and it's so important because everybody expects to be connected these days, but they don't understand precisely how that works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm looking at you, Julian, because I know you've worked in this now, but I, we, we, we need you to make it work. But we don't, I was about to say we don't care how it works, but actually no, but some people really do care how it works. Yeah, but I think the big, big majority of users don't care about how it works, but it must work. And this yeah. is the moment where it stopped working that you realize, oh, but I really need that connection or that uh, service to, to make, to do my job, to, to do my activities. So, yes. And to save material. And to save material. Yes, so much of our lives are saved online as well. Mm. Um, now, something that's very important about this is not just to be the, the key enabler, as, as you say, but also to upgrade, to make sure that this doesn't happen. So it's, it's future-proofed. Yes, yes. So what we, we, what we mean with uh, upgrading the connectivity is to make sure that everybody in, in Luxembourg and every businesses and, and consumers uh, are physically connected to an infrastructure that can bring them to, uh, to limitless possibilities. So in a way that uh, we don't know exactly what will be the future in terms of, uh, of needs for the internet connectivity. Will you need... Uh, dozens of gigabits per second in the future. We, we don't know yet, but what we want to prepare is that everybody is uh, capable of switching to such speeds whenever it's required. And where does our connectivity currently come from? So th- there is a spectrum of options and uh, that could be the, the most well-known is the underground or terrestrial connection that you get through your uh, DSL line, so your telephone telephone line, or that you can get through fib- optic fiber, or through the cable TV, which is uh, which is uh, which are three valid options to get today uh, solid connectivity. There are also wireless alternatives. We know Wi-Fi. All of us are using Wi-Fi. There are 5G, and uh, and eventually satellites. But there is a wide Uh, spectrum of options and as my connectivity we try to educate and to guide people on what matters what what is important what what they need and also explain uh, there are some technologies that are uh, progressively being uh, phased out or that will not be sufficient for the future Mm -hmm. and on the point of all of this we are looking towards a future of smart buildings as well Mm -hmm. where connectivity may become even more crucial Yes, it's true. Uh, smart buildings—that's that, also like a, it's a buzzword because it, it, it there's many things behind a smart building concept. But the, the thing is that a, a smart building is a, is is a building where the, the, the equipments and the technology inside the buildings can talk to each other. And the foundation of that is a proper internet connectivity because you need to have a coordination between the different systems, they need to talk to a cloud, then they need integration with other systems. And so we see connectivity also as an important pillar of the smart building trend, which is kind of slow at the moment, uh, because we smart buildings have been around for, for many, many years now. But the thing is that th- there is a lack of interoperability and standards among this ecosystem. And so it, it's changing over time because we see that uh, because of energy efficiency, because of uh, more commun- more connected objects are coming into play. So we see that it's slowly getting better. But you mentioned energy efficiency, 
But in fact, the energy requirements for a lot of the connections that we use are incredibly high for data storage, for instance. So connectivity uh, in a different way, having our lives now on this laptop that I'm looking at. And, you know, I, I recently heard um, a talk by Guillaume Piton talking about how m much, uh, you know, data we use just by sending X number of messages a day and, you know, the storage units kept up in the north of Sweden, etc. So mm. it's not always a green solution. Um so th there are there are there are certain areas of connectivity which are maybe um, subject to to that argument. However, the newest infrastructure are designed to be more energy efficient, and we see that the telcos ecosystem is building uh, as the green uh, let's say philosophy in mind when they build new infrastructures. So this is why also we 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 want to mo help and motivate people to switch to newer technologies because they are by design more efficient because. You know, the whole ecosystem, what I want you is to have a longer battery life so that they are optimizing every component and every everything is, is being optimized to, uh, to consume less energy at the end of the day. But it's true that there is a life cycle of those equipments and technologies and the oldest might be more energy um, greedy or yeah. less energy efficient. Greedy is a very good word for it. Yeah. So who is uh, going to pay for this new infrastructure? But that's a broad question. <laughs> um, this is a, this is an ecosystem. This is an open market. So it it is how do you, how do you say self sustainable? I mean, new usages, new services are driving adoption, are driving new subscriptions, new uh, new uh, acquisition of equipment, and that feeds the infrastructure investments. Mm -hmm. But it's we we saw that with five G that the the, the five G can only be introduced and can be sustainable if there is adoption behind from the consumers, from the the, the, the companies as well. Mm -hmm. And actually, when it comes to 5G, I'm turning to you now, Mark, because uh, not everybody believes in it. Uh, there's a certain uh, community of people out there who are quite anti that because they don't understand, perhaps, or maybe they do understand. I shouldn't say that necessarily. But, you know, I, I have seen graphs of 5G, but they're worried. It comes down to worry, actually, and concern. So I suppose your role, not just with 5G, but with my connectivity is to talk about all of the reasons and rationale behind things. I think what's important for us in terms of messaging and content is that we have a neutral position, you know, be it politically neutral, commercially neutral, technologically neutral. So when people have, and I think you see that with every sort of new evolution, if you talk about mobile phones, we be that for the transition from 1 to 2G, 2 to 3G, 4 to, uh, 3 to 4 and 4 to 5, there was always people that were sort of the naysayers that were worried. For us, I think it's important to kind of like bring the facts to the table uh, don't wash anything sort of into a sort of a cleaner um, shape that it is not, but to drive that content and to, as I said before, you know, it's about educating and informing and, and sensitizing people. So I think we have a very important role there in explaining things how they actually are. And you also have a community of experts. Exactly, yeah, we do. I mean, the community aspect is very important to us. Um, where it was Julien's idea very early doors last year in the office when we talked about sort of creating how we could sort of use our neutral positioning in the ecosystem to get all that knowledge from experts. And then the experts are willing, and telecom operators, for instance, they're all competitors in that market. But with us, they share information and it allows us to then share it back, you know, bundle it up and then share it back so every, everybody benefits. 
and that came, but I'll, I'll, I'll let maybe Julien explain uh, his sort of, uh, one of his babies of the, we call it the advisory community and what's behind it and what's actually happened since we've launched it in, uh, officially launched in April this year. Yeah, I can quickly explain that we, we have several branches in the community. Uh, the community is nowadays, I think, around 130 individuals who join it. And initially, it was mostly for the B2B sector. So we, 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 we regrouped telecom operators and businesses. And recently, we opened, a new, we opened a new chapter with consumers. And we had a first workshop with several consumer protection organizations public or private or ISBLs, and we gathered them to discuss what's are the, what are the priorities for you, what type of problems do you see um, for different profiles of, of consumers. And with their support, so with their advices, now we are working on a roadmap of projects that could uh, help solving those problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's very, very important because to have that kind of community of, of uh, experts, the advisory community, if ever they need to, They something comes up and they see, ah, oh, right, this isn't fully understood by the public. Mm. And it really is important to have that dialogue so that anything that is uh, taken on board needs to be fully understood because consumers buy best when they understand the product mm. and believe in the product, in fact. And to your point of creativity, Mark, because I know this is just embedded within you and your <laughs> past work, of course, how can you be creative with this? It doesn't sound like it needs much creativity so I'm dying to know how you're bringing your creative spirit to this. Well, I think for the past year or 13 months that I've now been there I think the whole team has been very creative because it's uh, all the projects activities but also the branding and positioning uh, we are a para-government institution but I think if you look at our colors they are kind of like really bold fluorescent colors that uh, gives us visibility we were to we were present with a booth at the Home Expo a couple of weeks ago and people approached us because they were curious. And that's like, that's a good first step, you mm -hmm. know, to engage in that conversation and people wanting to find out. And they did not confuse us with an internet service provider, which was good because otherwise they think you have a commercial intention to sell them a new mobile phone and then they're more reticent to come and speak to you. So they, and they were really open. It was a great exchange. And I think that's sort of like the whole, yeah, the color scheme that we use, the messaging that we use, uh, the projects, how we position them, also social media. You know, we were very active for the first half year or eight months on the, um, more sort of the companies, so B2B aspect. And now we're going into the B2C where the messaging needs to be adapted. Uh, it needs to be slightly different. Uh, and that community is slowly growing now as well. Uh, but that's why we actually don't consult with people. There's that sort of bottom-up approach uh, mm -hmm. in understanding, you know, how do we talk to people that ha have... Consumer protection, you know, we, we spoke to the ULC, to the, Cent uh, the European Centre Européen des Consommateurs here in Luxembourg to have all that be secure, you know, in the youth sector to have all, because the granularity gets really complex and, and complicated when it comes to end consumers. Because uh, they have different needs, they have different beliefs. Uh, they, they will, yeah, you have to really, it's a tailor-made communication for every single one of them. Yeah, every single age range, as you've just described, and, and the user as well. And often when we talk about this, I think of older people because I think of my own mother, actually. And, um, you know, their needs and their education levels when it comes to or, 
or their confidence. Let's put it that way. It's not about the, it's the confidence in using certain things or knowing certain things. It, it's not there. So it's about helping. And I know there are people in Luxembourg who actually help older people learn uh, certain yeah. there's, approaches. There's a great organization that we sort of have met uh, numerous times and they've also participated in that uh, workshop that um, Julien mentioned, Golden Me. You know, yeah. they're there to have, actually have those sort of internet cafes to help people. Uh, but maybe something because you mentioned your, your, your mom, my dad, and that was about this sort of we, the people usually don't care what they have or they're worried or not as confident about a new technology. My dad now has ultra high speed internet. And he said to me the other day, he's like, I would never give it up anymore. <laughs> he doesn't understand how it works. But for him, for his needs, it's changed his life. And he doesn't want to give it back now. He says, I, I will never ever revert back to a slower connection. And I think that's, uh, he's 74, so I think that's a great message of people then, when they discover it yeah. and the benefits of it, they don't want to let go anymore, you know. No, of course. I mean, people, we live in, a, we live in a, a, a world where we want things fast and we want things now. And when it suddenly goes down, we think, oh my goodness, what has happened? <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. So give us, give us an idea of what's, what's coming, what's heading our way. What are the, what is the really, the headline grabbing... Thing, yeah, what do we connectivity need to thing that's going to happen in the next year, say, or the next two years? Yeah, it's, um, it's a difficult exercise, but I, I, I see more and more devices being connected because uh, even things that you won't uh, think about connecting, you won't imagine connecting today, but maybe this microphone in the future will be connected to some sort of, of cloud or, or system to, to manage it remotely. And I think that many things around us will be connected. The cars are being connected, but that's now mainstream, let's say. But it was <laughs> very exotic, like maybe five or ten years ago. And I think the trend is that we'll see more and more devices in our daily life that we don't yeah, think about today. Mm. So you, I'm going to walk into the room and the kettle's going to go on and the light's going to go on. and the, the, Yeah. My brother-in-law and my sister already do that they already they? have the smart home and they do certain things in their house before they arrive home it's so yeah that, <laughs> it's there's right. maybe another aspect that uh, we're sort of uh, shouldering the regulator here in luxembourg with, with what they call a copper phase out so there's sort of this old technology that's being taken out of the ground and being replaced with new up-to-date future-proof technology and i think that will that will make an impact for a lot of people uh in the short term there might be this slight nuisance because the road needs to be dug up, but then once the technology is in, you know, they will all have, because we see that as like an essential right as well to have a, a good level of connectivity. We say it's like the right to have access to water, electricity, and that nobody should be left behind. So I think there, from now until the plan is from now until 2030 to actually change because there's, it's less energy consuming to have a new technology there. The knowledge is sort of like fizzling out as well of people for this old technology. So I think that's something that people, especially here in Luxembourg, and sort of short, mid, short and midterm, will experience between now and 2030. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just kind of uh, wrapping it all up with bits of conversation we've had from the news and and even talking to Julianne and to both of you as well. AI is coming. <laughs> and I know it's one of your really warm topics you care about it a lot so give us yeah. your views of this i mean it's, it's such a huge topic it, yeah it, it, so just let me say it's not a topic for my connectivity as such but no. it's i have my yeah i'm Your following this topic for a while now <laughs> and and i think uh yeah i could speak hours about it but ai i think requires a proper level of education and raising awareness 
uh, among the, the young, the younger generations, but also everyone in in the society should be educated about the the possibilities, the opportunities, and the threats that are behind. You can expand. We have a couple more minutes. Yes, you can great. expand. Yeah, tell no, me a little I, bit I mean, about what you what you fear about it. Actually, I think that's I, I say that because a lot of people can see the wonderful things that will come. But again, when you're trying to bring people on board with something, you need them to to want to use it. Yes. It, it, you, you, the, the threats that are coming and that we must be aware of is the, the, bias, the, the biases that we, we discussed in the yeah. biases that when you train or when you program a certain AI with certain, you, you feed that program with a certain type of content, it's more likely that the output will be similar to what, mm. uh, what, uh, what you fed. So this let's uh, AI uh, uh, company uh, created a more regional AI feeding it with local content and so this this that in that case is for good but we also be, we have to be careful of what does it mean for you know more complicated scenarios so i think everyone should be aware that there is always a certain a certain type of bias there is a certain also repetition in what an ai can produce so if you want to do copywriting yes you can ask chatgpt to write you endless articles but at the end, they will all look more or less the same, even if you are an artist and you can you know, change some parameters. But the, the general feeling you, you will be the same. So it's not the solution to everything. And at the same time, we must embark on the journey and, and we, we must go along and we must, we must learn how to use it properly, in a proper way. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you all so much for being my guest today. Have you any final thoughts to send us into the weekend? Have a great weekend. Hopefully the weather will improve again. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to hand back to Julianne, who's stayed with us with her wonderful pink headphones. I love your pink headphones. So, you know, have you any final words to send us on our way? I hope I will see you all virtually um, observing the moon this weekend. I think, <laughs> I think capacity. that's a call to action. <laughs> and Sasha? Yes, quite. I, I think we will all have to be staring at the moon because my big question was, <laughs> why... why this month when we had two full moons very recently um, and I was so excited to f- learn what a blue moon was but now I know now that we you know. can't have a full moon to, yes. to yeah. see the craters. I also thought that actually I was wondering why but now you've t- you've sent me my answer as well. Yep. It's all about watching <laughs> the craters and so I will, yeah, I don't have a telescope but I'll try and go out. We'll there. have a look. Yes, can we'll you see it with the naked eye? Yes. yes. The craters. You can yeah. see it. You'll be able to see some of it, I think, as well, depending on when you get out to view it, because as soon as the moon comes up, you're looking at her. There she is. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can see it as it comes up. So uh, I think there's different points of the night you'll be able to see it um, and you'll be able to see some of the craters. And also, depending on the light pollution on where you're viewing, will also kind of yeah. change how, how much you can see on it. But yes, uh, I I can usually see some of the craters. If you have any type of binoculars or access to a telescope of any kind, you can see a little bit better. But you can also tune into any of the NASA live streams um, and they will have some very up-close views going. <laughs> um, trust them to have the really good technology and yeah. telescopes, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, on that happy note, I wish you a lovely and safe weekend up there in Scotland. I know it's it's very difficult for some people who've been massively flooded, but uh, great to have you yeah. there doing your PhD in science communication. Thank you for Good luck me. with that work. Thank you guys for being in the studio. I wish you a lovely weekend, thank and you. thank you as always, Sasha, for being here with the news. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.